7, part 2 today. Yesterday we got through 22, 23, and we got to the beginning of 24 with Peter. Today let's get a little farther. Um, let's review quickly first, though. For, facts about Peter. First, Pope also denied uh, or said that he would never, ever deny the name of Jesus. Did it three times before the rooster crowed one day, showing that he was a little bit of a hypocrite uh, with the words that he used, with the, uh, his actions did not accord with his words, and that um, uh, sort of ironically, he becomes the rock or the foundation of the church, which means the foundation of the church is on humans, which means that that is a very firm foundation or a somewhat wavering foundation. Wavering. Somewhat wavering, right. If a God-man can be betrayed by uh, one of his good friends, probably any man can be betrayed by one of his friends. Uh, and so, remember he had two keys as well, one gold for power, one silver for discernment. Recall also that in art he is often represented as having at least one key, as here we see him having a key, and I don't know if I have another picture of him over here. Yes, I do. Uh, all the way to the left, he's looking rather stern and angry. He's upset at the current pope, that'd be Pope Boniface VIII, and he again has a key right there. Remember that we're also going to talk about today James and Hope. He wrote a very famous epistle on hope. Um, and also, if we can, we're going to get to John, who is the supposed most beloved of Christ, which I made the argument means that he was the most beloved of truth, that he came closest to the truth. And then, uh, we didn't talk about this yesterday, but there is a a naked guy in the back there without a halo because he was not Christian. Uh, who is that guy? Who is that guy who we're going to get to probably on Tuesday? Adam. Yes, the first man. The first man. And as we know, he, like Odysseus, meaning Nausicaa, was uh, unrobed until he put a leaf on himself when he realized he was vulnerable after attaining knowledge of his own death, the knowledge of good and evil, which is very interesting. I noticed a lot of correlates between the story where Odysseus meets Nausicaa covered in his uh, favorite leafy branch, and also Adam having a, uh, a leaf over his man parts himself. All right, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. Just take a seat. Just take a seat. All right, good, 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 good. So we went through the two quotes from Matthew, the one where Peter said, even if I fall away on account of you, I will never, never betray you. And then exhibit two, he denies once to a serving girl, second to a serving girl, third to somebody else, to somebody else. And so we know that he... He says one thing and he does another, and that tells us about humans. All right, good, good, good. Let's get into what is it we need to talk about today. All right, very important, especially for the quiz tomorrow, is knowing this definition that Dante gives to us of faith. His definition is faith is the substance of things hoped for and the argument for what is not seen, which is a really crazy definition. An argument for things not seen I don't even know what that means, but faith is the substance of things hoped for. Things you hope for are things that you will have or see in the future. So it's the substance of future things. So it's almost as if what faith is is something that connects the present to the future in a way that ensures that the future looks like how you would like it to look in the present. I'm not sure. It's a very sophisticated definition. It's not just what you believe for Dante. And so I want you to sort of pontificate on that for our seminar next Thursday, because I don't think I fully grasped that concept yet, and I hope that we can shed some light on it. All right, good, 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 good. So let's move on to the next question. All right. 
Peter asks Dante, why do you even accept the Old Testament and the New Testament, the so-called Bible, as the word of God? He says, why do you even think that's, that's the truth? And Dante will begin to answer that question from, he'll say, the works which followed it, not the words about it, are that which prove the truth of it. This is very interesting. This will be a tact that will be taken by James as well. Again, the idea that one's actions reveal one's character, that one's actions reveal the truth that one follows, not simply one's words. And we know that Dante doesn't accept that one's words reveal one's character, because obviously humans can do what? Lie. We can lie. And where is it that is full of liars whose actions do not accord with their words that we have been to together with Dante? In the Inferno, his version of hell. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's almost as if clothing oneself in virtue means revealing one's character through how one acts. You cannot hide your character. Your actions cannot hide your character seems to be the idea here, which I think is a powerful idea, a powerful idea. And so who claims that such works happen? Well, we get a, a quick disquisition on so-called miracles. Miracles, uh, you should know that the word miracle comes from the same word as mirage and mirror. It comes from mirage, to see something. And so, a miracle is a reflection in the world of one's words. I think that's sort of an interesting idea for Dante, that to perform a miracle is to make the idea in your head reflected in the world. That's sort of neat. And then the souls sing a, uh, a te deum laudimus, that means uh, you, God, we praise, or we praise you, God. Uh, and Peter brings Dante to the highest branches of the tree again. We're, we said that we were going to focus on metaphors of seeds, of plants, of roses, of gardens, and the highest branches. That's a metaphor for a tree. Trees are in gardens. We are getting to the roots of things, but we're also getting to the top of things. Uh, we're getting to the highest ideas and the deepest concepts. Uh, sort of interesting how metaphors of depth and height uh, converge in this in this part of the uh, text, especially if you take the idea of, say, a family tree of humans as an upside-down tree with the roots at the highest point. All right, good, 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 good. So this is a big-time quote from Dante. He says, I believe, so Peter says, okay, I've heard you give me some good reasons, some good definitions, but what is it that you actually believe? So the apostle that cares about faith now asks Dante directly about his subjective belief. I don't care what you think about as a scholar. I want to know what your heart thinks, which is a very interesting demand to make on Dante here. And Dante replies, I believe in one God who moves all the heavens with love and desire and is himself unmoved. This is a very interesting uh, definition of the divine. It's very Aristotelian. Notice that one word near the end that might make you think of Aristotle's unmoved mover. Which word is it? I sort of gave away the cake there. Unmoved, right. As in, there is some fixed point in the universe towards which all things strive due to their love and desire to be like it, which is sort of like an instinct in all creatures. And that is the idea that Dante has about the relationship between humans and the divine, that humans have a sort of instinct for the good, and that that which we love, we love because it partakes of something like the divine, and that we uh, strive to emulate that and to be like that in our lives. Interesting. Interesting. And so it's... Uh, and. Just another interesting point about that happens to be that 
It is not, therefore, a sort of divine sort of father figure who makes you be like himself, but it is rather your own sort of admiration for the idea or the, uh, or the concept that makes you choose to try to emulate it, which is a highly sophisticated idea. Very, very, very sophisticated. All right. Dante then claims to have physical and metaphysical proofs for his beliefs. So I don't know that it's really a belief in that case. He says Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the evangelists, they're all proof. He says, why did all these people act in these ways, these crazy ways? This one guy, he, split, you know, he led the Jewish people outside of, uh, out of Egypt, and then this Reed Sea parted. That's a miracle. That's crazy. Then he says, these prophets, they died in order to speak a truth. Why would they do that? These psalms, they are all these crazy stories about, well, actually, and psalms are like crazy songs, essentially, about, about this idea that these people are revolving around. And then, of course, the evangelists are the people who wrote the Gospels. It's like, why are these people all revolving around this idea if it's not a real idea? It's a, an interesting argument from sort of the crowd. Um, all of these people seem to be homing in on something that, because all of these people are directing their wills towards this something, this something must be a real something, it seems to be his reasoning. And that is actually a tact that St. Paul would later take. He would say, and it seems like circular reasoning to people who are very philosophically inclined, but he said, why would we die for something if, we, if there were no reason for dying for something? And I always think that that's sort of an interesting argument. He's like, why would I die for something if it weren't something worth dying for. Which is a funny way to frame an argument. All right, and then so he says he believes in the three eternal persons, one essence, a unity and trinity, a singular, a singularity and a plurality. That's, um, that is a basic form, Catholic formation of the idea of the trinity. So not only does he have an Aristotelian idea of the divine, but he also has a Catholic idea of it, the idea of three and one, of singular and plurality, of one and many of all things that exist, sort of an Empyrean-like idea. Good. And that this belief is stamped in his mind by the Gospels, as if it has been written with fire on his being. Good, good, good. Peter then accepts this and circles him three times. Remember that Peter had circled who three times before Dante? Yes. Beatrice. And who what, whose head was he around before he circled around Beatrice, who I said is sort of a figure for Mother Nature here, yes? Mm -hmm. Mary, Mary, and does anybody recall the Latin name that is sung for her that means Queen of Heaven? Yes? Regina Coeli. Very good, very good, very good. Know all of those. Know all of those questions. Know all of those questions. Those are good quiz questions. All right. We've seen St. Peter. Let's see St. James. All right, we're moving on. He's looking a little bit haggard, pretty holy. Notice that there's like some light shining on his face as if he is convening here with some sort of truth. Something interesting about looking up like that is, have you ever noticed that when you're really thinking about something, you look up and to the left kind of like that? It's like you're spacing out, right? Has anybody ever done that before? Like in seminar, you're actually thinking you're not spacing out, but you're like... It's almost like when you're doing that, you are convening with something which is divine, what is the most divine thing we know of on this world that differentiates humans from all the animals? The mind. Right. Exactly. It is an invisible thing that can give you and grasp truth, right? That's a pretty crazy thing. It is a, it is a brain hand. 
Because don't we use our minds to grasp things? Yes, very weird, brain hand. You ever think about your mind as a super hand to manipulate all things? I mean, you literally can't manipulate objects in your head and we require you to do that on standardized tests, right? It's called abstracting, it's called abstracting. Only you can do that, no dogs can do that. All right, cool, St. James, couple facts about him. Brother of the Apostle John, we're gonna meet John next, traditionally speaking. He also wrote a famous epistle, like I told you earlier, uh, called the Epistle to James. Remember, an epistle is a letter. letter. Um, and it was about hope. And so I just have a small section from this here where I thought it sort of illustrated his ideas of hope. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Be patient. Again, something's coming in the future. In order to understand that something's coming in the future, you've got to have what that is going to happen? Hope. Right. Right. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop? I think that's an excellent metaphor because when you plant a seed in the ground, any of you ever planted a seed in the ground? Well, like the next day you go look at the seed and you're like, is it a tree yet? Is it a tree yet? No, it's like probably nothing's happened. But like in a week, there's like a little what coming out of it. Like a little stem maybe or like a little root or something. And over time, you watch it grow. And as a teacher, what do I get to watch happen? I get to watch the little seedlings turn into little stems myself, myself. And it's not just physical growth that I get to observe with you because you're humans. You have another magical sort of growth. What do I get to see you develop that's non-physical seeming, yes? Your minds. Right, precisely so. And so I have to have some faith that what I'm doing works. And also I hope that you all will become titans of thought, of course, or at least have minds necessary to achieve the goals you wish to in this world. And so... Patiently waiting. Oh, I can, I can empathize with that. For the autumn and the spring rains, we don't need to worry, think about that. We're having some spring rains right now. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Very good. So that's a, the, the, uh, the end of the quote gets a little sort of darker there, but I think with a good idea, which is don't be nitpicking each other. You don't need to focus on each other's imperfections. You just need to be focusing on improving yourself and making sure that the seeds that you plant in the gardens become trees that, that bear fruit. The idea seems to be that in order to be successful in this world, since you have a notion of the future, you need to learn how to work slowly towards a goal. That seems to be the idea behind any sports training program that you all would have. That's certainly the idea behind your education. Do we teach you everything at once or very slowly and painstakingly teach you step by step in every single discipline that you have over at least 12 years of education? Right, 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 right. All right. Also, he's famous for his position on faith first deeds. I want you to see this just because this has sparked a lot of theological controversy over the last several, uh, not several, excuse me, over the last mm, uh, 1900 to 2000 years or so. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a, I, and I think this is very funny, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, <laughs> keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? I love that question. I love that question. In the same way, faith it, by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The idea is like, if you see somebody and they're hungry, 
and they don't have any clothes, and you say, go in peace, be warm. It's like, what are you actually doing for that person? Nothing, nothing. It's easy. That's lame. That's weak. You're just like, oh, man, I'm such a good person, wishing that person well but not offering them anything. It's like, I love that idea right there. Um, but um, not everybody agrees with it, by the way. Not everybody agrees with that sort of uh, idea. Lots of different beliefs these days, these days. All right, good, 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 good. Do I want to even give you all of this? No, no, no. Uh, I do want you to write this, though. Okay, I do want to give this to you. Just because I found in the, I was looking through the letter yesterday just to look for some elements of hope, and I found a mention to somebody that we know pretty well. Everybody remember Rahab the prostitute? When was it that she was led into heaven? Which, uh, middle, in the middle, 13th, 14th, when was it she was led into heaven according to Dante? She was the first person. So, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So again, hitting back this theme, you reveal your faith, you reveal your character through your actions. In the same way was not even, and I got very excited when I saw this, Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Okay, so I love that. I thought that was really great because the idea seems to be that if you were to just look at Rahab, and you saw that she was a prostitute, obviously you would judge her as mm, probably not the person with the best possible character, probably not the most faithful uh, person alive. That said, her actions seem to have revealed that she's a very different person than we might have otherwise judged, which I think ties back to a major theme in all of the epics, but especially in the Odyssey and in the Divine Comedy, which is nothing is as it what seems. seems. And so since you cannot trust your eyes to correctly judge somebody, perhaps you will judge your mind when you observe their actions over time which reveal their character. I think it's a very sophisticated way to look at the world, and it is like a Christian version of what we learned in the Odyssey. Alright, good. And I think this picture sort of means that. That one, Christ, the unity, is embodied by the faithful actions of the many, the apostles of the church triumphant, or the prophets, the evangelists, all the people mentioned earlier. And so they all circle around a central theme. And through their actions, a central character arises. And what do we generally call that central character? Nailed to a cross. Right, right. Dante has a highly sophisticated idea about how a new way of being based on an idea comes to be. Which you might well have wondered. It's like, how is it that new ideas take root in the world and people start acting in accordance with them and then they give them names? It's like, this is how, says Dante. This is how. Not just by talking, that's for sure. All right, all right. Dante foretells his victory. If it ever happens, and this is from Canto 25, that the sacred poem to which both heaven and earth have set their hands, so that it has made me thin for many a year, he's complaining about how thin he is writing this, should overcome the cruelty which shuts me out, mentions his exile there, from that lovely fold where I slept a lamb, the enemy of wolves who war against it. Again, that reference to a wolf, all the way back to Canto 1, we remember that wolf that he could not get by in the Inferno. With a different voice now, and with different voice. Ooh, he's now covered in virtue or something like that? I shall come back poet, 
And at the font of my baptism, I shall put on my wreath. The wreath, of course, the laurel wreath, that's what you gave to an Olympic victor. That's what you give to someone who is a winner. And so ultimately, even though he loses out by being exiled, he will be an eternal winner, he thinks. And that is, uh, since we are still reading him 700 years after his death, uh, uh, frankly, as true as it could be. As true as it could be. So Dante calls himself a lamb. Recall that lambs are creatures that get sacrificed. Um, we, and even to this day, we, uh, we, like their, we like to eat them. I for sure like to eat lambs. Lamb tastes really good. Uh, <laughs> but also we like, uh, what else do we use the lambs for? They're, they're, they're wool, right? They're wool, right. I was going to call it fleece. Fleece, right? Or is that goose? I can't remember. In any case, we like the lamb, we like the lamb wool. And very good, very good, very good. All right, all right, all right, all right. So James, what is he going to test Dante on? Hope. How is hope a garland? And where does it come from? Here is Dante's definition of hope, which you must know for tomorrow. Hope is a certain expectation of future glory. It actually reminds me quite a bit of his definition of faith. Faith and hope both seem to be uh, uh, knots that tie the what time to the what time? The present time to the future. That's right. That's right. And so, would an animal be capable of faith or hope that did not have a rational intellect? No. Why? Because what is it that your rational intellect allows you to see, which is why you can make plans and then act in accordance with them? The future. That's right. Only you can see the future. Which is why I was actually having a conversation with my girlfriend yesterday about her dog. I was, I was making, and this is a very sad claim, I was saying, well, since a dog can't see the future, whenever you leave it, it's as if you're leaving it for how long? Forever. And so when your dog is like crying and like going crazy, and you're like, why are you so crazy like this? Don't you learn? It's like, does it learn? It's like, no, no. Every time you leave, and maybe somebody could disprove me on this, but I think this is true. Every time you leave, you're leaving forever as far as that dog is concerned. So, you know, when it tears things up, you could just imagine that it's sort of like doing what Priam does when he found out that Hector was dead and tears his hair out and, and covers his face in dirt. It's like your dog is so unhappy that you're gone forever. And then when you show back up and it jumps all over you, it's like, oh my gosh, that's like a real... For it, I, I guess I would say, come to Jesus moment. Uh, it's like, wow, you're resurrected and you're back again and you are never coming back. Wow, I'm so happy. Which is great. So, James makes, or rather, Dante, because Dante's the one being tested here, makes two claims. That we have two sorts of clothes. Okay, this sort of imagery of clothes again. One physical and one spiritual. And that hope is the spiritual Garb, like a uniform. And so one is known by its presence, somebody who has hope, therefore. Okay, good, good, good. We then have um, the angels sing. So not te deum laudimus this time, but rather sperent in te. They believe in you, the angels sing. And hope is pointed to by the figures in the Old Testament and the New Testament according to Isaiah. So it says Dante 25, 86 to, or 85 to 96. Christ is then compared to a pelican. Uh, I often, I used to wonder what that meant. There was an old medieval idea that pelicans would actually puncture their own breasts so that their children could drink their blood. So the idea is they sacrifice their own blood for their young, which is similar to the idea of Jesus, who uh, the idea behind him was that he sacrificed himself for the humans who were to come, his own young, us, I guess. 
And so, there you go. Well, Dante then, <laughs> he's trying to, so James, John, and uh, Peter, since we're so high in heaven, you don't see their physical forms particularly well. It's actually quite like Ulysses in the Inferno, where we do not see him because he is covered in light. Well, here, they are covered in light. And Dante's like, mm, you know, he's a human. We get pretty what? Somebody says you're not allowed to look at something, you immediately become what? Curious, yes. So he's trying to stare inside of James. He's like, where are you actually? And when he stares, what happens when you stare at the light for too long? You go blind and ah, eyes, eyes, he loses his sight. And so he's going to have to talk to the apostle John without the ability to see. Very interesting, just a couple correlates to that. It is, of course, the case that ancient prophets were often blind. Tiresias, of course, from the Odyssey. Um, also, he will um, compare himself, I think, to Thamyris and Phineas, who also were blind. Um, and, of course, Homer, who was a poet, was blind. And, interestingly enough, the last epic poet we will ever read together, John Milton, he wrote when he was blind. And he, too, made quite a connection to the idea of seeing some sort of truth that was so profound, so bright, that it blinds you. He also thought that it was because of something that he ate. He also thought that it was possibly God cursing him for wanting him, uh, for him justifying the political faction that put a king to death, which is like an embodiment of God on earth for those people during the time of Milton in the 17th century. All right, good. Dang, St. John. So first thing I want you to notice about this is, where is he looking? Up, up again, like he's thinking. What's that creature next to him? It's an eagle. That's very interesting because... You will often see, if you see, if you look at pictures of St. John, you'll see an eagle. Which means that, what do we know that that means from Dante already? Why is he represented as having an eagle? I mean, of course, as one of the evangelists, he is often represented as an eagle. But what does it mean that an eagle is often next to him? That he must have a what? Think. Where are eagles? In the sky. And so that is an image for perspective, having a higher perspective, right? That's both why you would be represented as looking up into the sky. If you're in the sky, you can look down on the world from a higher vantage point or perspective. But uh, as an eagle, you have sharp, accurate sight. So apparently his sight was the most accurate of any man's ever to have existed, uh, according to these artists, according to these artists. And I think that that's also what this image represents. Who's the big guy in the back with the beard who looks sort of girly and guy? That's Jesus. That's Jesus in this case. Who's got his head on his shoulder? John. Which must mean that if Jesus is an ideal of the truth or a figure of the truth for Dante, Dante must believe that John came the closest to the what of any person? The truth. Right, right. That's a very clever way to present that idea. And so, okay, St. John the Apostle. We've gotten to the third person. I'm very happy about this. Notice the eagle. It, he is often represented as an eagle. There are the four evangelists. They're represented as four different animals. I forget what all four are. One is a human. I think that's Luke because it's the most humane. One is a bull or an ox. One is an eagle and one is a lion. I think I got that right. Is that, you think there's Sorry. another one? What's one? Sorry. No, none of them are represented as serpents. None of them are represented as serpents. Uh, there's a very particular figure that is represented as a serpent, and it is for sure not one of the evangelists. 
though the serpent is a highly symbolic image. All right, so he is said to have been the most beloved of Christ, as in the most filled with logos. And uh, his works are considered by many to be the most insightful or the most philosophical. In fact, at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, which is ascribed to him as an author, is in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Highly philosophical uh, thing to think of. But if you think of Word as a manifestation of consciousness, and the coming of being of humans was uh, a parallel to the coming to be of what within humans. The thing that can grasp truth, what do we call that? The mind, right, precisely the mind. And so the beginning of humanity was consciousness, which can produce words. And that consciousness was with God. And that consciousness was God. Very interesting way to interpret these sorts of texts. You can interpret them how you want, but I don't think that's wrong. All right, good. So John tests Dante on love slash charity. Recall that, why is it that given the theme of these last few cantos, love would be manifested best by sacrifice or charity? What is it that expresses love best? You saying, I love you? Amabote? Or you showing that you love something or someone through your actions? Showing. showing. And that seems to be what an act of charity is or an act of sacrifice. You actually give up something of worth to you for someone else to show them how you feel. Uh, like you give them up your time or your energy or your money. Or, or even, in some cases, your dreams. Your dreams. Um, which is often something that some parents say. They say they gave up their childish dreams in order to say, raise you. To raise you. Because uh, what dream could be as great as you? Which is a funny thing to think about. So, so make sure you study hard. Because if your parents think that, which they probably do, they want the best for you. And so you have to want the best for yourself. Alright, so the good or love here is Alpha and Omega. That's, uh, that's very biblical language. That means that it is that towards which all things strive, and it is that which first caused all things. Uh, in Aristotelian language, that would mean that it is the first mover, but also the final cause. Um, the final cause for Aristotle, he has this theory of four causes, efficient cause, material cause, final cause, and formal cause, that the final cause is the telos, or the end towards which a thing so if I am a teacher, my talos is to disseminate information to the world in order to produce the character necessary in order to create the most stable and best society possible. Um, and that's what I move towards every single day. And the reason I do that is because of love, of course, love, sort of common love, uh, love for my common man, because I want a common world that is better than the world that I inherited. Cool. All right, so is love or charity primary and final? Because what humans first shared with each other, as humans, was the so-called apple, or super substantial food, information, because we are conscious. Oh, very interesting, that notion there. That how is it that we manifest love to each other? Is it by sharing? And what is the thing that humans can share with each other that no other animal can share with each other? Well, we produce what? Not we produce information, and then we share it with each other. That's right. That's right. That's highly sophisticated. We use language in order to share concepts with each other. Like, I'll sit here and try and convince you that acting charitably towards people will actually make you rich, which is a very weird thing to think of, but that is how capitalism works. Uh, you give things away, they come back to you. You make the people around you rich, you become what are yourself. 
richer yourself. I know, and it doesn't seem like it makes sense, and yet that's how things seem to work. I mean, if you look at the, the history of capitalism, 120 years ago, the 19th century in America, people lived on $2 a day in today's monetary, by today's monetary standards. I want you to think about that. Yesterday I ate a burrito and a taco for $11.94, and it was just a regular meal. That's like six days of, of wages in the 19th century. It's incredible. And how many of you have supercomputers in your pockets right now? Right, or at least near you. It's like, it's incredible how rich we've become as a people. And like, you're seeing these beautiful slides up here on this flat screen TV with this beautiful art from these Renaissance thinkers. And it's just, this is not how it has always been. It is not how it has always been. All right, good, 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 good. All right, Dante. The more one is good, the more one loves. The more one gives, and what one gives is good, the more one reveals of one's goodness. So what does one share most appropriately with others? Whatever skills or excellences one has. And all goods come from the good. Otherwise, how could we identify what is good? I don't really need you to write. This slide is highly philosophical. It seems to be the idea is that how could you know what was good unless you had some sort of platonic ideal form idea of what was good in the first place? Could there be good things if there were not a capital G good from which all things came? Uh, I don't know. We're going to have to talk about that in seminar. All right. And so. I don't know if I want to I don't know if I want to talk about this slide. I got to make some choices here. Okay. Okay. I'm just going to very quickly go through this. Know that bold name and know what it is he says here. So, Dante continues his examination of love in Canto 26 37 39. Uh, he says that the truth of love is revealed within, which is very different from the idea that we heard earlier where uh, love is revealed through one's actions. And said to Moses, uh, by God was, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. Therefore, Moses will know goodness by what the good is. Therefore, one sees truths by first knowing the truth. Like I was saying earlier, the many from the one, ex unibus plurum, which is an inversion of e pluribus unum. Dante uh, claims that God or Jesus died as a unity so that other unities, humans, could live distinct existences by the light of consciousness or truth. The one died so the many could live. Seems to be the idea. But the many joined in brotherhood as one. Which is, you know, a very complicated idea. A very complicated idea. But one that we're well prepared for. Just like there are many people in an army. Many notes in a harmony or a, in a song. Um, many stars in one sky or many stars that form a constellation like in the fixed stars many different things that all work in accord together towards one unified goal seems to be the idea here all right cool dante continues his examination and he says that he loves what he loves because of what is good or true or divine in all things like leaves of the eternal gardener hmm and then his sight returns Oddly enough, the site returns. The information's up here. The information's up here. All right. And now he sees better than before, and Adam, the first human, approaches him. 
I just want you to know this picture here. This is extremely famous. It's by Michelangelo. It's uh, in Italian, Creazione di Adamo, the creation of Adam. And I just want you to take this in, I believe, the Sistine Chapel. It's definitely in the Vatican. Um, you see Adam here, sort of reclining. You see a figure of God with some angels and some cherubim here. Uh, very famously, what does this image look like if you look at all of it? It looks like a human what? Yes? Heart. Not quite heart. It's very close. It looks like a brain. That's right. It looks like a brain. And so it's like the coming of God to man was the coming of the mind to man. Do you see that idea in this picture here? It's very interesting. Very interesting. Um, much, much, much has been said about this, but I just want you to know this piece of art. And I want you to know at least those two figures there. One is Adam. One is God. And there is an insuperable super gulf between them. Now, a lot of people have made a, a big old comment about the fact that are their fingers touching or slightly apart? Slightly apart. I don't know entirely what to do with that, that bit. It's as if you have to reach out in front of you to grasp what's there or something like that. But this is an extremely famous picture. All right. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. And we'll end the day with this quick quote. This is from the creation of man about Adam. So now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, very similar to how in Ovid, the second generation of men after a big flood, are formed from mud and stones. Um, and watered the whole surface of the ground, and God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And that man was supposedly this man, Adam. And we're going to ask him four questions, but we're not going to ask him those questions until Tuesday.